Welcome to the 53rd episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. Today is Monday, November 2nd, 2020, the day before Election Day in America. One of my goals during Season 3 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast and into Season 4 and beyond is to try out new formats for some episodes. This is an interview podcast First and foremost, and it always will be, but we also cover timely topics in our field and in our broader society. Today, instead of an interview with a scholar, I thought it might be nice to take a different course, especially as this week is sure to be exhausting for many people. As the second half of the filmed version of Hamilton, the Tony Award-winning musical that became a cultural phenomenon begins. There is a moment when David Diggs turns to the crowd to reveal himself as, now, Thomas Jefferson coming home from abroad to join President George Washington's cabinet. The lyrics to the song, What Did I Miss?, A playful tune among Lin-Manuel Miranda's many iconic songs accurately and effectively capture the relationships between the colonizers of this land and set the tone for the second half of the musical. However, when Diggs, as Jefferson, reveals himself, he does so with a wide grin one which seems to stretch beyond his lustrous cheekbones, implying a certain mischievousness we see so often in our characters and so often in our history. As the performance of What Did I Miss unfolds, Jefferson asks asks his comrades, So what did I miss? What did I miss? Before declaring his affinity for his home, Monticello. Virginia, my home sweet home, I want to give you a kiss. Of course, we know Thomas Jefferson had an affinity for more than 18th century notions of democracy and his home in Virginia. He loved women. I've been in Paris meeting lots of different ladies. And he loved slaves. We can't and shouldn't look past Jefferson's controversial existence, and in fact, critics of Hamilton have pointed to its glossing of the role of American slavery in the development of the nation. But Jefferson's character isn't the topic I want to settle on today. On the eve of the 2020 election, I instead wonder how you would answer someone who comes home to America now. Someone who basically missed the late 2010s, like Jefferson missed as he sings, I guess I basically missed the late 80s. Of course, that's the 1780s. But what would you say to an expatriate arriving home who asks, What did I miss? Where would you even begin? You could begin by using quantitative figures to describe our current moment. 
230,000 Americans dead from the coronavirus, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The CDC also projects up to 10,000 Americans will die during the week ending November 21st. The economic impact of COVID-19 on both a global and a local scale can be represented quantitatively too. This is according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. In my state, Illinois, the total unemployment rate for the month of September was 10.2%, up almost 7 percentage points since the beginning of the pandemic, when it experienced an all-time low 3.4%. Right now, 8% of the American population is unemployed as a result of how our country's leadership has mishandled the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, quantitative figures are just one place to begin. You could begin by describing how police violence impacts black and brown bodies disproportionately in comparison to other bodies, specifically white bodies. You could say their names, George Floyd, Walter Wallace, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, Philando Castile, Botham Jean, Laylene Polanco, Michael Brown Jr., Emantic Bradford Jr., Brianna Taylor. Here, you could use cell phone videos, police, body cam, and dash cam recordings to answer the question, what did I miss? You could use critical race theory against the wishes of our current administration to accurately portray how the intersections of law, race, and power have led to the uprising we are experiencing in our cities and to describe Black Lives Matter as a form of resistance to patriarchal control. Of course, systematic control is not new for black people, and police violence is certainly not new in our country. So consider this just one place to begin. It's hard to imagine someone not understanding the current state of America, because we have instant global communication. Even this statement, though, is complex, because we now live in a world where shades of the truth exist, because some people disregard facts, science, and reason. The primary reason we live in an era of post-truth is because of how we use social media in our society. Today, the ideas of contemporary authoritarianism, which lived on obscure message boards and other underground digital communities for so long, has now seeped into mainstream social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. QAnon conspiracy theories propagandist videos from Candace Owens, Charlie Kirk, and other alt-right voices, and podcasts from Joe Rogan, and fake news stories and inaccurate memes that serve as dog whistles for oppression are now shared by loving grandmothers who gave the best Christmas presents and kind uncles who taught you how to drive. 
If someone asks you what they missed in America these last few years, you could show them pictures of Supreme Court Justices Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, and explain that a potential one-term president drastically altered the direction of our nation through the judiciary branch by making over our Supreme Court to be wider and more radically conservative. You could talk about the anger and rage displayed by Senator Lindsey Graham and Justice Kavanaugh throughout his Senate confirmation proceedings, moments which embody the white patriarchal government which controls us. You might compare Justice Coney Barrett to former Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland. Both were nominees in an election year, but only the Republicans were able to push their nominee through. This is a blatant demonstration of the ideological compartmentalization performed by so many conservative thinkers and voters. You might even describe Justice Coney Barrett as a gift to so many of the white women voters who delivered this administration the presidency in 2016. If someone asks you what they missed in America the last few years, you might consider what rhetoric can lend to you in answering their question. How can rhetoric help? It can help us to identify power and asymmetrical power and how that makes meaning in our society. It can help us identify a range of stakeholders of an issue and forecast implications for our cultures. It can propel us beyond engagement with our feelings about a certain issue into actions with the potential to affect change. Rhetoric can help us see that a red baseball cap with the words Make America Great Again is more than an assemblage of materials impacted by design. It is a symbol of authoritarianism, of hate. It helps us see that the statement to stand back and stand by is more than a confusing maxim called out by the president during a presidential debate. It's a dog whistle to white supremacists to prepare to defend their values through violence and a contested presidential election. If someone asks you, what they missed in America the last few years, you could begin with any of the aforementioned approaches to answer their question. Each of the approaches brings their own value, but will only be effective if your audience is willing to listen to you. So perhaps the most effective way to describe what they missed is to show them a ballot. Let's put the conversation about the dominance of two imperial parties in American politics aside for a moment. Our ballot consists of two choices, Donald Trump and Mike Pence, or Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. One option consists of nominees who inflame tensions with racist rhetoric, consider gay people less than human, have lined the pockets of billionaires and neglected the livelihood of millions of Americans by mishandling the coronavirus response. The other option is not perfect. 
but I believe it is a more accurate representation of the ideals of our country and will help us get to where we once were going and where we could go if we get back on track. So show them a ballot and tell them to vote and not for the former reality television star. That is the best way to explain to someone what they missed in America these last few years. There are great tragedies which occur in the second half of Hamilton. The loss, infidelity, and ultimately death experienced by Alexander Hamilton, his family, and his contemporaries shaped not only our government then, but the way we see our government and political systems now, at this critical crossroads, we have an opportunity to contend with how we historicize these infrastructures and embody them now, but also how we imagine them for the future. To that end, I am reminded of lyrics from another song from Hamilton, Dear Theodosia. Dear Theodosia is an epistolary duet sung by the characters of Hamilton, played by Miranda, and Aaron Burr, played by Leslie Odom Jr., to their children, detailing the hope they have for their future and the future of this young nation. We'll bleed and fight for you. We'll make it right for you. If we lay a strong enough foundation, we'll pass it on to you. We'll give the world to you. And you'll blow us all away. Someday. As the Big Rhetorical Podcast wraps up Season 3, we are looking to book guests all the way into Season 5. And we want to talk to you. You can find more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. And follow us on Twitter at TheBigRed. Leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically.